Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode... Number 187, titled, Do You Have Dollars and Cents? Last month, I was at the bookstore, and there was a new book by Dan Ariely and Jeff Chrysler called Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. My first impression is, that's what they called it? My, I had a personal finance column for three or four years for the Upper Valley Standard Journal here in Idaho, and and they they chose the title on their own, and they called it Dollars and Cents, which has to be the most cliche column, personal finance column. There's, there must be hundreds of personal finance columns called Dollars and Cents. So I'd search Amazon to see, there has to be another book titled that. And sure enough, there's a book by the Bernstein Bears called Dollars and Cents, Another by Elaine Scott and David Clark called Dollars and Cents, A Kid's Guide to Using, Not Losing Money. And another book by David Philip Green called Dollars and Cents, 10 Fundamentals of Financial Success. Yet, Ariely's book's at the top of the list on Amazon, and he is a talented writer. I first read one of his books in 2008 titled Predictably Irrational, and at the time, I, I... I keep all the books I read just so I know what I read. I typically do a little snippet in terms of what I thought about. If you go to the About page of MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com, there's a link to the books I've read over the last 10 years or so, 12 years, really. And this particular book I called Excellent Summary of Studies with Behavioral Economics. So I wasn't really keen on the title, and it was on behavioral finance, and I already did an episode Episode 138, where I talked about the Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, where he talked about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. That was 138, Should You Sell Your Stocks Before Trump Takes Office? I also discussed Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking thinking Fast and Slow, in episode 27, What is the Right Price? But in thinking about it, I realized there's some principles I need to do a better job just learning on my own. And the focus is going to be on furniture. Think about the furniture you've had in your lives. The furniture we had, most of our furniture, we didn't change very much. My mother inherited some antiques and cherry mahogany from her Aunt Louise, who got it from an attorney of the Roebling family that she worked for in Cincinnati. And we rarely got furniture. The one time I remember we got a new piece of furniture, my mom found a chair outside the St. Vincent de Paul collection box, and we discussed the ethics of, can you take a chair from a donation box? If if you're poor and you, you need a chair, we took it. We bought a couple chairs off of classified ads, I remember. But 
just think about furniture you've had. It kind of comes in and out. Laprell and I bought about 10 years ago a tropical hardwood table and six chairs from the unfinished store. We paid $1,000. When we sold our farm and we're moving to Idaho Falls, we didn't want to move that set, so we sold it. Then we traded a living room set with my sister-in-law and got her large oak table that we used to host over 20 people for Thanksgiving about a year ago. But then we've moved into a different house, a mid-century modern house, and the oak table set wouldn't fit. So we were in the market for a new dining set. And the question is where to buy it. If possible, I wanted to buy it furniture made in the U.S. and knowing where it came from, who made it. So we bought a Julian table in white ash from Room and Board. It was made by the Seeloff Company or the Seeloff Corporation. That started in their garage in the, I guess, the 19th century. And by Ulrich Seeloff, he discovered his love of furniture and design in the family workshop. And so this is a family company that made this chair, or I'm sorry, made this table, $1,600 on room and board for this white ash table. And then we bought six chairs that were made by M.H. Parks. They're based out of Massachusetts, and they started in 1827, $400 each. And so we spent $4,000 on American-made chairs and table in ash. And that was an expense. That was money we spent. We do an annual budget in the Stein household. And every month we go through this, I go through a spreadsheet and see what we spent that month and how that fit into our annual budget. And we didn't have a furniture budget. That just falls into the category shopping. An expense is something you actually, I, when I spend money, it, especially such a large amount, it kind of hurts because this is not, furniture falls in value over time, typically. I mentioned the table set. We bought it for a thousand new. We sold it on Craigslist for $200. And so there's, there's a sense of Kind of pain when you when you buy something. Some things you're really excited about, but sometimes just it kind of feels bad to spend money. And you see it on this spreadsheet and only spent $4,000 on a dining room table set. But we moved into this new house and it's a mid-century modern house. Beautiful light-filled living room. Big windows, really cool lines on the ceiling. The living room furniture... We bought with the house, so we gave away our other furniture to my brother-in-law, and this one had living room furniture, but it needed something against the one wall, some type of bookcase, a bigger piece to bring some additional beauty to this living room. So we found ourselves in Salt Lake City at the Euro Treasures Antique Store. It's a large warehouse, a lot of Victorian mahogany-type antiques, dark wood, just I'm just walking through and found not many mid-century modern pieces, but there was one, it was a bookcase. We asked about it. The owner said it was $900. And I thought, oh, that's reasonable. Because in my mind, I just had spent $4,000 on a table and chair set. So $900, th- that seemed much less. 
my anchor price was $4,000. Ariely and Chrysler write that anchoring occurs when we are drawn to a conclusion by something that should not have any relevance to our decision. It's when we let irrelevant information pollute the decision-making process. Anchoring might not seem too worrisome if we think that the numbers don't pollute our decisions very often. But the second and more dangerous part of anchoring is that this initial irrelevant starting point can become the basis for future decisions from that point forward. I'd spent $4,000 on furniture, but that was a brand new furniture. And Ash, this was an antique. It really wasn't relevant to what it should cost. But I was anchored, and so I thought $900, that seemed cheap compared to the furniture expense I had, had what we'd spent earlier that year. But we didn't make a decision right away. We walked, walked around the store more, and just on the other side of the mid-century modern piece was this beautiful three-door bookcase, huge dark oak glass doors, absolutely beautiful. Now my mind's anchored to $900. And I asked the owner, how much is that? $15,000. He says it's a stickly. And stickly didn't, didn't <laughs> appeal to me. I didn't know who stickly was. I just, $15,000. Wow. And we, we walked and, and looking more into the store. Ariely and Chrysler says, when it comes to f- making financial decisions, which should matter are opportunity cost, which are the true benefits a purchase provides and the real pleasure we receive from it compared to other ways we could spend our money. So we could buy something or we could spend it on something else. We should look at the opportunity cost. What's the benefit we're receiving and the pleasure from that purchase compared to other ways we could spend money? They go on, we must make sacrifices. We must choose things not to do. That means we absolutely must consciously or not consider opportunity cost every time we use money. Opportunity opportunity cost are alternatives. They are the things that we give away now or later in order to do something. And we don't typically think about that. They, they mention, I think the uh, Chrysler went to do surveys at the Toyota car dealership. And he asked people there, think about buying a car. What were they really willing to give up to buy this car? Things they were going to give up in the future. And, and this was just foreign to people. They said, our ability to buy a Honda because we're going to buy a Toyota. But they don't think about necessarily that we're going to give up a potential vacation or we're not going to be able to eat out as much because of this purchase. I wasn't thinking like that at all when it came to furniture because I was just looking for a piece. I wasn't thinking about what I was going to give up. I just wanted to get the right price. I knew I had spent $4,000 on a dining set. I I didn't really know what I I was going to spend, but $15,000 for a stickly just seemed a little like way, way too much. But then I met Riley, another co-owner uh, of your treasures. And we were in the back room and there was the most beautiful piece of furniture I'd ever seen. It was a Limbert sideboard, Charles Limbert. He was born in 1854 in Pennsylvania, died in his home in Grand Rapids in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 1923. Heavily influenced by the Dutch 
well, really founded the Dutch arts and crafts style furniture and designed furniture. And that's kind of what this arts and craft furniture, that's what the stickly is, very much simple lines and, and where you can see the quality of the wood as well as how it, it's put together in terms of pegs oftentimes used, in terms of putting the different pieces of wood together. Just beautiful, beautiful piece of furniture. I asked Riley how much it was, and he, and he described, I didn't know who Lindbergh was. He, I'm, I'm giving you information I have found afterwards, which gives you a hint what might have happened with this particular piece. He said $5,000. And, and I thought, that's worth it. It's a beautiful piece. I've never seen a piece of wood. I, I have another sort of oak sideboard that we bought many years ago at an auction, not even on purpose. I'm standing there at this auction, and somehow he's th- the auctioneer thought I bid. And, and he says, sold, and he pointed at me. And we paid $300 or so for this piece of furniture. But when I compare that to this piece, it's just completely different. The Pro loved it also, and we decided, well, Let's buy it. This could go against that wall. And turns out Riley could bring it up in his truck. He wouldn't charge for delivery. Deal. And then he says, what about a package deal? As long as I'm bringing up a truck, is there anything else in the store you might be interested in? Back to the book Dollars and Cents. We know... And they point out that when we buy, we should consider the opportunity cost, the true benefit and the pleasure compared to other ways we could spend our money. What we shouldn't consider, they say, what should not matter in a perfectly rational world, sales prices or savings or how much we're spending at the same time on something else. In other words, the savings we get, a package deal, that should not have entered into our consideration. Something else you shouldn't enter into our consideration is the classification of our money, where it came from and how we feel about it. This is mental accounting. I'll talk about that in a minute. The ease of payment, cash or credit, that shouldn't make a difference in terms of our decision making. And the first price we see or previous prices we've paid for a purchase, the anchoring that we've talked about. Let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. 
Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We've wandered around the warehouse to see if there's anything else we might want to consider because we've made the decision to buy the Limburgh sideboard. Well, I came back to the glass bookcase, three doors that made by Ellen J.G. Stickley. It was the Anondaga three-door bookcase, glass doors. I asked Riley about it. He told me about it. He said he'd gone to Chicago, looked at hundreds of pieces of furniture, and only bought three. And this was his favorite. He paid $9,000 for it. And it was beautiful. Stickley, Gustav Stickley, who was the brothers of the Stickleys that built the bookcase, these are all built early 1900s. And, and they sort of worked together and they founded this arts and crafts movement. In fact, Gustav Stickley put out a periodical that he started in 1901 called The Craftsman. And the whole idea was focus on the quality of the wood, simplicity of construction. Make the best piece that you can. Which he did. But then he overexpanded and bought or rented a 12-story office in Manhattan that he used as a warehouse showroom to, to and sort of to share this philosophy. He ended up going bankrupt in 1915. It was a beautiful piece. And then I started to think, well, this isn't really an experience. Spence, I'm not buying furniture that I put in my spreadsheet. If I'm buying antiques, this is investing. I'm investing in antiques. I'm, I'm and, and Riley used this word, a collector. Not, not just buying furniture. This could go up in value. It had gone up in value since it was built in 1900. Here it was five minutes ago. I couldn't even, didn't even know who Stickley was. In fact, they call it Sticky at one point. Stickley. And now I was thinking, maybe I should invest. 
Now, I know enough about investing, and you do too, that this is not, this is a speculation. Speculation is where there's some difference in what, whether the return will be positive or negative. And so I could buy this and it could fall in value. In fact, I didn't even know what the value was. I didn't know what it was worth. I just trusted Riley because I could see his love for furniture. I trusted that that's what he paid, $9,000 for this piece. But I also thought I've made way more than that on Bitcoin in the last couple of months just because Bitcoin, another speculative asset, had gone up in price. It's what people are willing to pay. And I started thinking, well, if it's an expense, it doesn't go through my spreadsheet. It doesn't feel bad about it because it's a different category. It goes on my balance sheet. It's an asset. It's part of my net worth. It's not an expense. Here's what Ariely and Chrysler say about mental accounting. That's what I was doing. I was doing mental accounting. I was shifting this from an expense to an investment. From this perspective, they write, mental accounting is still not rational, but it is sensible, especially given our computational limits. When we compartmentalize for simplicity, we don't have to think about the whole world of opportunity costs every time we spend. That would be exhausting. We just need to think about our smaller budget for coffee or dinner or entertainment and the opportunity costs within it. It's not perfect, but it helps. So if we're deciding which restaurant we want to eat at, do we eat at the more expensive one or do we eat fast food? We think about our restaurant budget. So it's an easier calculation. Our furniture expenses show up in shopping, but now we're thinking about it in terms of investment. And they point out that this is called malleable mental accounting. There's some ambiguity there in terms of the exact categories. And I fell into some mental accounting. Riley said, if we do a package deal, we'll get a discount and free shipping. And it includes tax. And you can use your credit card. If you use your credit card, then it doesn't quite seem as much like spending. If you use cash, cash feels more painful. It's more visceral. I recall the, the little girl who we bought the bracelet from in San Cristobal de las Casas. I handed her the cash and she pulled up that bill and she smelled it. And I, said, and I asked her, do you say, it smell good? And she says, yeah, it's visceral. The pain of paying, says Ariely, it's a function of time and attention. How much time does it take to, to, to pull out those bills one by one? How much attention do we put on it? When we use a credit card, very quick. We're not seeing the money. Just go. It's all digital. It just happens. And if I use my American Express Starwood, then I would get points. Here's what Ariella says. Credit cards also make us value purchases differently. They seduce us into thinking about the positive aspects of a purchase in contrast to cash which makes us also consider the downsides of the purchase. In fact, I'd have to run it through my spreadsheet. And the downside of parting with our cash. With credit card in hand, we think about how good something will taste or how nice it will look on the mantle, or in our case, in the living room. When we use cash, we focus, that's what we're focusing on. 
They point out that money in the future has a discounted value. When we plan to pay in the future, it hurts less than when we pay the same amount now. You charge it, you don't have to pay for it a long time. It almost feels free right now, is how they put it. They go on, we're not paying until the great, unknowable, optimistic future when we may be a lottery winner or a movie star or inventor of solar-powered jetpack. In the future, when you pay with a credit card, which is why credit can be so dangerous. Remember the first time I started using a credit card to buy groceries, my mother-in-law thought I was crazy to use a credit card to buy groceries. Now we do it all the time. We just a debit or credit card. And we get points. So we thought about it. And we bought a package deal. We bought the Limburg sideboard. We bought the bookcase by the Stickley bookcase and a Stickley chair. And we got Starwood points. And because it was an investment, I'm a collector. It wasn't an expense. After we left the store on that night, I thought, what in the world have I done? Thousands of dollars spent on furniture. Investment. After I, I did the episode, I think it was 146, on how to decide what to buy I talked about the car purchase we did at BMW, and one of the listeners, or plus members, asked me as a psychiatrist, he says, are you an impulsive buyer? And kind of stung a little bit. I mean, he was kind about it, but not usually. But sometimes, and particularly when it comes to mental counting. So afterwards... I did what we all do when we make a large purchase. We are subject to confirmation bias. We look for information that confirms what we did was the right choice. I'm scouring the internet looking for prices of three-door bookcases by Stickley. What are they selling for? I found one for $15,000, different one. And it wasn't even as nice as the one that we got. I bought a book, used book called Stickly Style, and read all about Stickly, know everything about it. Well, not everything, but I know a lot more about Stickly than I did when I was pronouncing it sticky in the store. So we have this confirmation bias. We're looking and confirming that we made the right choice. These are behavioral things when it comes to money. We have to consider the opportunity cost when we buy. What's the benefit? What's the pleasure we get compared to other things and not fall prey to malleable mental counting? We all do mental counting. We just have to be aware of it. In fact, at the end, the last chapter of the book, they says, stop and think. They write, every so often, consider how much pleasure, how much value we may truly get out of a purchase. Think about what else we could spend the money on and why we are making this choice. If we recognize what we are doing and why, over time, slowly but surely, we'll get the ability to change our decision-making for the better. 
I have no idea whether it's a good choice. It showed up last week. Beautiful pieces of furniture. They look great in our living room. And, and I'm fine with it. It was an investment. I'm a collector now. But it's also an expense. And, and we'll see what happens. It certainly has more substance than Bitcoin. I can enjoy it. I can look at it. I can admire it. I can let my kids have it when I, I grow old. But we need to be cognizant when we buy at the opportunity cost and the benefit and compare it to other things. Great book, Dollars and Cents. I, do, I would encourage you. There's a lot of, lot of good stuff in that book. You can, can get a link to that in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, why don't you sign up for, for my free insider's guide. Each week, I, I do some of my best writing there. I, I've written about emerging markets. Last week, I sort of gave an update on, on markets and what happened in, in 2017. So it's not necessarily always things doing with that week's topic. It's sometimes things that could be more timely. And so sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can just text the word insider to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, just general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>